Um, just a quick announcement. Uh, next year, our preaching plans, uh, Lord willing, is going to be a series entitled Gospel Above All. And we're going to be emphasizing the beauty and the power of the gospel and how it shapes our lives. So we're going to be talking about because we believe that the gospel is above all, it shapes the way we do church. Because we believe that the gospel is above all, it shapes our understanding of marriage. Right? Because the gospel is above all, it shapes the way we interact with one another and with others who are around us. So um, what we've done is that we've made notebooks uh, for you to be able to get and follow along with us. Um, it's a little notebook that's got enough pages for you to take notes of all 52 uh, messages that we'll be preaching uh, starting the first Sunday in, in January. Uh, comes with an ink pen. Also included is a Bible reading guide. We're going to be reading the Bible together. Uh, and so um, these are going to be uh, available at a minimal cost, just really what it cost us to get them. Um, they're in the office now. You can pick them up this week, but they'll be available for you to buy, I think, $3 um, starting on the 29th uh, of this month. So I just want to uh, make you aware of that. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Primarily because of a memory that sticks in my mind as a little boy. Right? The, the one Christmas that stands out for me above all others is a Christmas when I was six years old. Um, we lived up in Hammond, Indiana. Uh, my dad was uh, a boilermaker, so he was a welder. And, but he traveled a lot. Wherever they needed him to work, that's where he went to work. And when I was uh, five years old, we moved to Kentucky. And when we moved to Kentucky, we rented an old farmhouse out in the country. Um, it was so old that it did not have an indoor bathroom. Uh, so we had an outhouse, and I don't mind telling you that wintertime trips to the bathroom was an experience. Uh, I can still remember um, um, baths in a tub in the backyard as a little boy. Then when I was six, my parents moved into town, and uh, my dad had an opportunity to go to work for a company that he actually helped build as a welder. It was a brand new company that just started uh, but he had an opportunity to be home every night with five children. Um, and so even though it was a significant decrease in compensation, he wanted to be at home with his kids. And so that first Christmas in that little rental house, it would have been either 1966 or 1967. And um, my mom and dad would tell the story that that year, when he had just taken a new job, and so their money was really tight. By the time they had paid all of their bills, they had about $25 left uh, to provide Christmas for five kids. Um, and um, so I, I remember that year, because in our house, Christmas presents never went under the tree until Christmas morning, right? And so that's why children get out of bed at 3 a.m., uh, if you want your kids to sleep late on Christmas, set them out the night before. Um, 
But uh, nevertheless, um, that morning uh, when I opened uh, my Christmas, uh, what my parents bought me that year was the most incredible Christmas gift in all the world. Um, it was a little reel-to-reel camera with these little cartoon slide strips, right? And here's what sticks out in my mind. That afternoon, uh, my mom made a bunch of popcorn, and my dad took sheets and covered the windows in the house, and he put one on the wall. And so it was the Derek Staples movie theater. And uh, the only way that you could get in, mom made popcorn for everybody, and the only way that you could get in to the show was to pay me a tithe of your popcorn. Um, and um, I guess the Lord had plans for me to be a pastor even, even then. Um, but I remember to this day sitting in that room with my brothers and my sister and my mom and my dad and my granddad and showing them films. It stands out to this day. Now, this is not the most expensive present that I ever received. But I will tell you to this day, as a six-year-old boy, it was by far the most meaningful. That is so important for us to remember today. Right? It's so easy at Christmas time to get wrapped up in so many things that Christmas has to offer with trees and parties and candies and um, gifts and all kinds of, of things. One church in particular was doing a Christmas play and there was a time in the play when baby Jesus was to be born and laid in this manger that they decided to put a spotlight right specifically on the manger. So there would be a time in the play when all the lights would go off and there would be a spotlight on the baby laying in the manger. Well, the young man that was doing all the lights had missed a switch or something anyway. When they placed the baby in the manger, all the lights went off, including the spotlight. And it was a moment later when one of the shepherds shouted out and said, Hey, you've switched off Jesus. Well... It's easy for us to do that, isn't it? It's actually quite simple for us to go through a holiday season and simply switch off Jesus. Right? Here's a good place for us to begin. Jesus Christ is the greatest gift of all. If you believe that, say amen. Now, so let's all start here. When you receive a gift like no other, you cherish it above all else. When you receive a gift like no other, you cherish it above all else. Gabe read our scripture for us this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And Luke tells us that Rome had called for a census. The census was for the purpose of raising taxes, right? So imagine that, a government needing more taxes, and so everybody had to travel to their hometown to register to sign up. Caesar Augustus um, was a, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was a born fighter. He clawed his way to the top. He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus, which is a word that means holy. In fact, 
It was a title that up to that point was exclusively used for the gods. And now Rome decided it was time to elevate a Caesar as a god. And so that's what they did. Luke was writing his gospel. Um, and while he was writing it, there were already some Caesars, some cities in Rome that had adopted Caesar's birthday as the first day of the new year. In other words, they were hailing him as a savior. Isn't it interesting? Right? You put all of these pieces together and you see a sovereign God orchestrating everything. Tyrrhenius was the governor of Syria. He is known to have governed Syria twice, once from 12 to 4 BC and then from 6 to 12 AD. Now, why is Dr. Luke giving us these details? Because back then they didn't have a calendar system. So the year that something occurred was tied to whoever was the ruling leader of the day. And that's how they put things together. In other words, right off the bat in Luke chapter 2, Luke is begging us to check him out. He's begging us to examine the story for what it is. Right? When you read the Bible, you find that it's not about fictional places. It's not about places that you can't go to. It's about historical places. It's about historical people. It is about historical events. And herein, God displays His sovereignty. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 21 verse 1 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. God takes pagan kings and rulers and uses them as his own servants for his purposes. And by the way, dear ones, God still does that today. Now, in verse 4, um, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Bethlehem is, uh, at the time, it was a very small village, about six miles south and a little bit east of Jerusalem. Right? It's a word, Bethlehem means house of bread. So Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. Now the quickest route and the easiest route would have, would, would have been for them to go straight through Samaria to Jerusalem and then down and east a little bit to Bethlehem. But at that time, no Jew would travel through Samaria. So Joseph and Mary had to go east a little ways of Nazareth till they came to the Jordan River. And when they got to the Jordan River, they would have followed a path that followed alongside the Jordan River all the way down to Jericho. So the total distance in the route that they took was about 100 miles. So they walked a long way from Nazareth over to the Jordan River and then due south down toward the Dead Sea until they arrived at Jericho. When they arrived at Jericho, it would be then a 22-mile trek north to the city of Jerusalem known as the Jericho Road. Now if you've ever been to Israel, you know that it is in this region a dry, parched 
arid existence, right? It would have been uh, very difficult. Uh, The Jericho Road would have been a road that would have flowed, sometimes a dry creek bed that would have flowed through these rocky cliffs. In fact, it was known to be a place of bandits and robbers. You only followed the Jericho Road if you had no other options available to you. It was so dangerous, in fact, that you will recall Jesus even told us a story about someone who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves, right? That's the Jericho road. So once Joseph and Mary arrived in Jericho, they had about a 22-mile trek north and up into the mountains to the city of Jerusalem. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem, then that's the easy part of the trip, right? That's six miles south and a little bit east to a little village called Bethlehem. Now, keep in mind, they are making this journey when Mary is ready to give birth. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for her. Right from the very moment that they left Nazareth to the very moment that they arrived in Bethlehem, how in the world could Mary ever find a position of comfort? Right? So if she's riding on a donkey, she's got a baby kicking at her ribs. If she's walking, when she's walking, she wants to sit. And when she's sitting, she wants to walk. It is, had to have been the most uncomfortable journey that any young girl, barely a teenager would have to make. Finally, they reached Bethlehem. The text tells us that when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Can you imagine that conversation that Joseph and Mary had together? Joseph, it's time. Well, how do you know? (laughs) Why would a man ever ask a woman that question you know I I mean I have to assume in my mind some of the conversation that is between the lines of the text right and so you have to imagine Mary communicating to Joseph it's time right I wonder how she did it I wonder if first she said Joseph it's time and he probably said something like well how do you know or are you sure only for her to say Joseph (laughs) right Um, it's time and so they arrive and they're in Bethlehem and it's time for her to give birth. The text simply says she gave birth to her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling clothes or pieces of cloth laid him in a manger because there was no place for them, no room for them in the inn. So I'm sure when Mary told Joseph it's time, right, he probably did what I did when my wife told me it was time for our first child to be born, right? He went into absolute panic mode, right, that we all, uh, that we all do. I, I remember... Uh, driving my wife, it was a week before our oldest son's um, um, date uh, when the doctor said we, she would give birth. And it was a week before. I'd left early that morning and, 
Um, Julie was having some contractions, but we had a doctor's appointment that afternoon, and within just a few hours, she called for me to come home. And when I got home, the contractions were, you know, uh, three minutes, I guess, three to five minutes apart. And the hospital was maybe 20 minutes, Julie, I think, 20 minutes down the road. And so uh, I called the doctor from the house and uh, said, we're on our way to the hospital, loaded up my wife, and, and off we went. And uh, I, I don't mind telling you that every time she had a contraction, I drove even faster. Um, and um, it, it was just one of, those, one of those moments. So Joseph goes into frantic mode. I wonder if he thought for a minute and said, no, wait a minute, the village inn. The owner's name is Tom. It's six shekels a night. He always keeps the light on. You know, maybe it was one of those kinds of, of places. But the text clearly says there was no room. The sun had fallen. If you've been to the Holy Land, it in the wintertime is quite chilly at night. Um, they found a stable. Really something like a, a small cave. Um, today, if you visit the city of Bethlehem, it is a very large city. And you, go, you can go uh, to the church of the nativity, uh, to a place where many believe is the spot where Jesus was born. And then when you leave, you go out to a place called the shepherd's caves. And it was there that shepherds would often... Um, take their sheep and their animals and put them up in what they used for stables, which would be a small cave. It would be a cave that would be hewn out of rock, and it was probably in a place similar to this where Jesus, the Son of God, was born. I want you to think about that, dear ones. You have a man reigning on the throne as Caesar Augustus who is now referred to as a god. And in the midst of that, under the perfect timing of God the Father, God the Son was born. No fanfare, no parade, the Son of God simply took on flesh in the middle of nowhere to a couple of nobodies in an all but forgotten town, probably in a cave like this. They were poor, uneducated, insignificant. But isn't it true, church, that things are not always as they seem? Mary and Joseph were the adoptive father and birth mother of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, all in fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy, as Micah 5.2 states, but as for you, Bethlehem, Apathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me to be ruler 
in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Right? So go all the way back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Go back to verse 27 where it says, Let us make man in our image. And hear a conversation between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Come forward. And now see the Son of the living God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. And made His dwelling among us. This is the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, pitching His tent among humanity. Becoming one of us. In Bethlehem, the house of bread, the bread of life was born. So, let's draw some application today. How can we approach Christmas without switching off Jesus? All right, how can we go through the decorations and the parties and the candies and the gifts and all of those things while at the same time keeping the spotlight squarely on the Son of the living God whose birth we celebrate? Well, let's draw a little bit of application. First, we should simplify our life in order to focus on God. Right, So I would encourage you in your Christmas celebrations to simplify them as much as you can. Right, The point of the gospel isn't just to give us gifts. It's to help us to see and savor Jesus Christ as the great treasure, as the pearl of great price. It's to help us remember That Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is a gift like no other. Secondly, share what salvation really means. let's, Let's let Dr. Seuss do that for us. Maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps means a little bit more. The gospel is not simply a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. And that is our goal. That is our objective. The greatest gift that God has given us is the gift of Himself. That's the heart of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave. Paul put it, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. When you receive a gift like no other, you cherish it above all else. And dear ones, in an ever-increasing post-Christian society, it is more important than ever 
that we share the truth of Christmas. Somebody was sharing with me this morning that there is a, either a series or a movie that is on Netflix that depicts Jesus as a gay man. It does not surprise me that lost people act like lost people. But it should break our hearts when Christians don't act like Christians and don't recognize Jesus Christ and exalt Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure above everything else. Third, Serve others the way Jesus has served you. Serve others the way Jesus has served you. In my house growing up, um, my mom always puts Christmas tags on presents. Right? So as a little boy, uh, there would be a present under the tree, and it would say, to Derek, from Dad, or, right, to Dennis from mom, to Deborah from mom. So there'd be these tags on the presents so that you know what present went to who. Had Jesus worn a tag hanging on that manger that morning, it would have simply said to Miss June, from God to Bob from God to Bill and Beth from God but it goes on doesn't it because when you see Jesus Christ on the cross Shedding his blood for our sins. Again, to Brent from God. To Stephen from God. And hallelujah, dear ones, on that morning when the stone was rolled away. And you walked in to simply an empty tomb. What does it shout? To Adam from God. To Sue from God. To Derek from God. How could that not be the greatest gift of all? I want to just encourage you today, nobody will ever love you like God. And he proved it in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where you are today. It doesn't matter what life circumstance you're dealing with. It doesn't matter what pain you're currently experiencing. 
Jesus Christ wants to break through into your life and use you as a giant billboard display of the grace of God to the world. And if you will but, if you will but follow the example of three kids, humble yourself, turn from all known sin, And place your faith in Jesus Christ. You too can be made new. May Gabe and Elon and Finley all wore t-shirts today that says Jesus has made me new. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 Behold, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. And the old is gone. And everything is new. Can I ask you today, church, what needs to be made new in you?